Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners across America and around the world. Many public relations professionals have some experience with crisis communications, perhaps with outcomes at either end of that scale. Dealing with a crisis for most of us is a part-time undertaking. My guest today specializes in crisis management and crisis prevention. Joining us today from Monrovia, California, is Jonathan Bernstein, head of Bernstein Crisis Management. Now, Jonathan has massive crisis and issues management credentials since about 1982. His past experience includes five years of investigative and feature journalism, including working with the noted investigative reporter Jack Anderson. He's also spent time with Playboy magazine in the corporate communications part and with the Rudder Rudder Finn Agency. He publishes Crisis Manager, a first-of-its-kind email newsletter for those who are crisis managers, whether they want to be or not, and it is read in 75 countries. He manages two industry-leading crisis blogs, Keeping the Wolves at Bay, Media Training, and A Manager's Guide to Crisis Management. A PR Week feature story, the Crunch Time Counselors identified Bernstein as one of the 22 people who should be on your speed dial in a crisis. And Business Week featured him in an article entitled Masters of Disaster. So having said all that, let me welcome Jonathan to the program. How are you? I'm well, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Well, good. Look, we've all seen just stories and articles and so forth about uh, crisis communications and planning and that sort of thing, but very few people Mm -hmm. talk to us about the prevention side of that. So... Why don't you tell us where we need what we need to do to begin to prevent these things from happening? Well, it, it, first I say in in my approximately thirty five years of experience uh, and 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 those of the consultants who work with me, we have found that about ninety five percent of the crises to which we've been called to respond have been completely preventable, as in completely preventable. So when you when you look at that, and that's with the certainly with the wisdom of hindsight, because we're you know the fire is already burning. But then when we do a post-crisis analysis, which is an important thing to do after a crisis has happened, we we look for the root cause. And when we find and invariably we find that if if crisis prevention activities had taken place the way they should, and the way we'll talk about on your show in a moment, these crises could have been averted. And in other cases, even if the crisis couldn't have been averted, damage could have been greatly mitigated, much more than it actually was. So with that as kind of a, a foundation for this, the, the other is that I think anybody would agree with you or me that reputation is an organization's most valuable asset. Mm-hmm. And, and, and But it doesn't get treated that way. You know, normally our most important assets are very well protected um, and crisis management should be looked at as a critical form of asset protection mm-hmm. and it's not most of the time because we still find that the vast majority of organizations out there are either 
underprepared or completely unprepared for breaking crisis, although that's that's changing. That's changed a lot in the last 10 years. So uh, it used to be that two-thirds of the first incoming phone calls we got were for breaking crisis. Now about two-thirds of them are for crisis pre prevention work. Mm -hmm. And uh, would you like me to outline you know, the, the process for crisis prevention that we, we recommend to virtually anybody? Why don't, why don't we do that? But one of the things I think that, uh, since you said most of them were preventable, could you sort of highlight some of the things that could have been done to prevent some of the, the, the crisis from taking place in the beginning? Yes. One, one of the things is establishing a uh, that could have prevented quite a few crises is if the organizations involved had had an internal whistleblowing system where people mm -hmm. who saw trouble occurring, if they felt that they were afraid to go to their supervisor or didn't have a process for kicking things upstairs when they were a problem, um, they just didn't bother to proceed at that point. And, and so the issues were known at some low to mid level and not reported upstream. So for example, there was a big developer in Hawaii some years ago and they had a, a record uh, rainfall there, a hundred, what they call a hundred year rain. And there was runoff from the chemicals on the golf course at this development into a pristine bay, uh, off of Kona, Hawaii. And needless to say, you know, the, the, the native Hawaiian population in particular were very upset about that. And we went there and we fought the fire from a reputation point of view. But afterwards I was given permission to interview employees throughout the, the company there in Kona and, um, what I found was that some people in the grounds maintenance department knew that a, a particularly heavy rain, the, the drainage system would not be able to handle it. And there would be that runoff. And they mentioned it to their supervisor who said, Oh, we don't want to bother the people back at headquarters, which happened to be in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And, um, so they didn't. And if they had put in the right drainage systems, entirely entirely preventable uh, in other cases it's fair to plan for things like computer hacking or uh, total loss of your primary service you know server wherever that happens to be located uh, it, it can even be something as simple as, as a question we ask people when we do what's called a vulnerability audit we say if you lost your primary place of business today your headquarters building, your manufacturing site, whatever that is, would everybody here know where to report for work tomorrow and what they're supposed to do? Mm -hmm. The answer is almost invariably no. Think of the amount of man hours, the amount of time, the amount of resources involved in actually getting a business restarted if there's a sudden loss like that. Mm -hmm. If that's planned for in advance, that process can take place very expeditiously after 911 there were some financial services firms whose world trade center offices got virtually destroyed and all or most of their staff killed some of them had contingency backups for that for total loss and they were back in business within a week and operating in another location with they had everything all ready to go they had uh, backup rental arrangements already made or space sharing arrangements made with a friendly competitor. Mm -hmm. Others, months and months and months before they were able to get going again. What did that cost them in lost business? A huge amount, obviously. Mm -hmm. So those are some common examples for you. 
Well, now let's then shift to uh, your uh, preventable uh, itinerary, you know, list of ways to prevent these sort of things from happening. Right. Well, the, the first thing is to do essentially the, the, the crisis management equivalent of a full body scan. And it, the, what we call a vulnerability audit. And the, and the very simplest form of vulnerability audit can be done by anybody in-house. You, you put your top people around the table and you say, what could go wrong this year with any part of our organization? And have we taken steps to make sure that that doesn't happen? Mm-hmm. Do we have plans in place? Do we have backups in place? Backups is another area where there's often inadequate preparation because everybody thinks about backups for computer data. What about key personnel? And uh, what about telephone systems if they crash? Or what about any system that can go down? And often that's not thought about. So you can have that kind of a brainstorming session for yourselves and answer your own questions about what needs to happen to mitigate any of the vulnerabilities found. Mm-hmm. A formal vulnerability audit, as, as done as we do it, is a, is a process built on our multiple decades of experience because we reversed engineered crises for all of our careers. And so we know where the red flags are. So we ask questions like that question about, does everybody here know where to report for work today? Mm-hmm. Or in you know, in addition to having your data backed up, you also have a means of getting that data back into use after a total loss of a server mm-hmm. because it takes more than just data to get a business going again. It needs the servers, it needs the software, it needs the personnel. There's a lot of other factors. So we, we lead our clients through a series of questions which invariably beget more questions. And um, and over the course of a full day, sometimes longer, depending on the organization, we get a really good picture of where their strengths and vulnerabilities are. And what we prepare for our clients, and again, they could do this for themselves, is a prioritized list of vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. either tier one, tier two, or tier three. Tier one, I tell CEOs, very frankly, take care of these now before your ass falls off. We're that, <laughs> that blunt about it. And tier two is lesser priority. Tier three is even lower priority, but they're all important. And we identify why they're important, and we suggest the ways they can mitigate that. Sometimes maybe they need to hire a forensic expert. Maybe they need to hire a, you know, an IT person to test their security and, you know, do some, try to breach their security, whatever our recommendation is. And that all goes to the C-suite to make their decisions about what to do next. Mm -hmm. And typically a CEO response is to tell his team, okay, what's it going to take to get the tier one vulnerabilities taken care of soon? And they'll come back with a plan and we work with them. And in some cases we can help remedy the situation because for example, if they've never had media training, we can provide media training, but a lot of times they need, they can handle it all in-house once they have it all laid out. But I, I don't know if you may have seen this in organizations, Peter, but there's a phenomenon we call silos where people just don't talk to each other in mm-hmm. different departments of an organization. Silos. Absolutely. And some, yes. And some, some organizations are no, particularly notorious for that. We do a lot of work with colleges and uh, the, the, the silos there, the faculty versus administration, students all in different, uh, alumni, they're all in different silos. And what the vulnerability audit process does is break down the walls of the silos. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I certainly uh, was involved in uh, silos when I worked uh, uh, in the federal government uh, in one of the in President Clinton's administration. The people who've been there for a while, certainly, and we, what we found out was there was a lot of duplication going on there. We could have saved time, money, and energy, mm-hmm. and we actually mm-hmm. wound up uh, resolving those issues. But nobody had thought to to do anything about it in the past. Exactly right. It, it, it's not a day-to-day responsibility for anybody, normally. You don't have anybody in-house. You have a risk manager who's looking at the risk that they are insured for. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those are not, you know, there's a whole broad category of crises uh, that aren't often are not covered by insurance that fall in the category of reputation crisis. You know, if you're, if you're just being trashed entirely on the Internet, your, your whole crisis is online, which is more and more true these days. Mm-hmm. Insurance may or may not cover that, although I have to say to the credit of the insurance industry, they are now offering products which will cover the cost of any crisis. Well, I think uh, that, that online crisis obviously is an ongoing problem that uh, people need to face and and be willing to admit that you've got this problem and, and certainly, as you said, know who to call to fix it if, it, if you don't have, it, uh, have that capability in-house. Right. And, and we find, I mean, our goal is to also train our clients as much as they can be trained in, in the techniques we use. So to, you know, some of them, sometimes they'll end up needing our help for a long time. Other times we train their people so well they almost never have to call us. So it's okay too. <laughs> You know, one of the things that you mentioned, I think, at the top, you said the internal whistleblowing program, because one of the problems that exists in some large organizations is that the people at the, you know, right there with the hands on and where they can see things going wrong, sometimes don't feel comfortable reporting these problems Mm -hmm. up for whatever reason. How do you go about resolving uh, that issue so that that comfort level increases and uh, it's accepted that um, you can report things, mm-hmm. problems to higher management? Well, <clears throat> firstly, it, start, it does start from the top down. The CEO has to make it very clear that he wants this to happen. He's encouraging people to participate. But also the system has to have at least two methods of reporting issues. One for the record where you don't mind being named, but you still feel a need to report a ticket upstairs, mm-hmm. and the other, anonymous. Okay. And the anonymous method is the most important, but you know, a- anonymous reporters are have to be informed by the reporting system, whether that be a, a website or whatever is set up for these reports, has to be informed that they need to provide enough detail for someone to investigate without being able to talk to them. Mm-hmm. So it is on the, if the reporter wants to be anonymous, it's on them to provide enough detail. And then the company needs to decide with, whether to take any action or not. And um, obviously if it's something blatant, a lot of employees will see that action has been taken. And, uh, and in either case, if something, it, for the example of in Kona in, in that, in that incident, uh, if, if that employee had, felt comfortable reporting uh, either for the record or anonymously, and in his case, I would have said he probably would have been anonymous, then the CEO back in Phoenix would have seen it much sooner and said, this is not a risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. Let's fix the drain. Let's fix the drainage system. You know, one of the things that, that uh, comes to mind is that uh, this program, I think it's still on, um, 
uh, undercover boss, I believe it is, where the boss, you know, mm-hmm. goes to mm-hmm. uh, the franchise, whatever, and he talks to yep. the, the line employees, and he finds out, well, as employees saying, well, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, or whatever, so, well, we have this program in place uh, to, to handle this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, either the uh, staff, they don't know about it, or that it has not mm-hmm. been uh, utilized, so it, for all practical yes. purposes, it's useless. So those kind yes. of issues have to be fixed as well. Yes, training has to go along with it. It's one, it's one thing to establish new policies and procedures, but they are meaningless, as you say, without training to accompany them. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the questions we asked during a vulnerability audit, we asked about their existing policies on media spokesperson, who's the media spokesperson, you know, uh, what, are, what are their policies for privacy, et cetera. And, you know, if, if we... And then the other question is, is there training to go along with these policies? Mm-hmm. And any any policy that's critical to crisis prevention or crisis response, you've got to have training to go along with it. And uh, that isn't often thought of. The HR department needs to be very involved often in setting up and making sure the training or refresher training in these topics take place, even though they're not directly related to improving their ability to provide a particular good or service, they are critical to protecting their most important asset. You know, I think the other thing that you may have mentioned that is, is because of the importance of preventing these, well, you might not be able to prevent them all, but whatever the, the, the policies are in place, that should originate from the CEO, whoever the head of the organization is, to let people know that we are taking this seriously so, you know, here it is, and we expect you to follow these guidelines, and here are some things that we can do to minimize any damage to us. But that needs to really come from the top all the time. It does. It does. And um, and I have seen sometimes when there's been a change of CEO uh, in an organization, and the, the first CEO was a champion of this process, and the second didn't care that much. And I've seen all of a sudden they're slacking off on the training. They're slacking off, and all of a sudden their crisis plans are way outdated. And there's been personnel turnover, and none of the personnel have been trained. And so there, there always needs to be a champion. Hopefully, it gets actually built into corporate culture. And I've got a, a number of longtime clients that I can say, crisis best practices in crisis management are now best practices at those organizations, Mm -hmm. but they didn't start that way. They didn't start that way. Most of them started with bad crises that scared them enough that they wanted to get it done right from that point on. Well, I know we've talked about the business side of it, but uh, just uh, let me just get your take. I think we've all seen that interview that uh, Prince Andrew had, and uh, he's being Mm -hmm. uh, widely criticized about that. How would you have guided uh, uh, him in preparing for or addressing that uh, that interview? I, I would have advised him never to do the interview. Simple. It, that was a lose-lose proposition. And it was, you know, I, I understand from what I've read, which is probably the same things you've read, that he was advised not to do it mm-hmm. and, and felt that he could handle it. <laughs> I've heard, heard that, that before. before from, <laughs> I've heard that before <laughs> right. from clients. Oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And, and there, and but what it does point out is the dramatic difference between a routine uh, media interview and a crisis-related media interview. Absolutely. The first, the first is to build and promote whatever it is that you build and promote. 
and they, in this case, I would assume the, the reputation of the monarchy. That's, that's the asset that he holds closest to him. But in a crisis, when, you're, when there's a crisis involved, it's to preserve and protect. Uh, and it's a different mindset. It's more of a police mindset, frankly. And he's, royals are not used to that, particularly he's been getting away with, you know, despite the Randy Andy nicknames and all of that, for the most part, he's flown below the radar before Jeffrey Epstein. But the moment he was connected with him so firmly with pictures and words, uh, the best thing he could have probably, possibly done was actually take himself off the public mm -hmm. table uh, and just go do what I call doing a Bill Clinton. Just go off camera for a while, go off and do a lot of good on the side, mm -hmm. let people forget about your transgression some, and then come back later as the head of a charity and just be remembered for being the head of a charity and people forget about it over time. But there is no way this close to the Jeffrey Upton news that, that the print should have ever done an interview with any reporter because the questions he was asked were not particularly hard, but they were very logical mm -hmm. to be asked. Mm -hmm. Well, it was reported that uh, someone on his PR team or well, the head of the PR team resigned once he decided he was going to push forward on it because they too had suggested that he not uh, do the interview. Yes. But as you said, and, uh, and so I would I would have resigned. I would have resigned the account even if it was a paid account by the British royal family for the same reason. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've seen it. The people think uh, they can handle it. They get in, the water gets too deep, they start thrashing, and you've got to run in and try to try to bail them out of it. Yeah, and there, and to continue that analogy, since I was a lifeguard in my youth, a drowning <laughs> swimmer takes, tends to take people down tends to take people down with them if you're not careful when you're approaching. Mm -hmm. Well, well, you know, Jonathan, this has been very, very uh, in, in, uh, enlightening. Do you have anything that you believe that all of our listeners should know in terms of their not only uh, crisis preparation but also crisis prevention? Uh, well, I think the I think the biggest thing is, you know, it, it encourage clients. Not there's there, I've seen a trend to some extent trying to go to what I call generic crisis planning, and and there are some very good pre-formatted plans out there, uh, published in books, published on PRSA sites periodically. But there's an old expression from the early days of computer use, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. Have, ha having a form doesn't mean you know how to fill it out. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and there is no single form that fits any organization. You Absolutely. need to be able to adapt it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, no, no two of our plans are the same. No two of our vulnerabilities are the same. You know, yes, we start with a form or format, but it's there. And, uh, and I've seen this, people wanted to take a shortcut thinking they could just fill in the blanks and, you know, cons and I, you see this question probably too on my PRSA on the website where we originally made our connection is people say, does anybody have a, a fill in the blank plan I can use. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then they're going to turn around and bill a client for that. <laughs> I don't think so. If that, if that plan is based, is not based on a vulnerability audit, then that plan is not accurate. It's mm -hmm. not, it does not handle the client's needs fully. You can't write an accurate either operational response plan or communications response without really doing at least your own at home vulnerability audit and knowing mm -hmm. where the weak links are. If, if you don't know, that you have a website that's going to crash when it reaches 
say, 100,000 users in a day, which if you're a retailer and you have a crisis, you would easily exceed, then there's a vulnerability you could have prevented if you bothered to ask the question. Mm -hmm. Instead, what happens when a website crashes uh, at a major retailer? All their customers get really upset. And if it's preventable, how, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars would an Amazon or anybody else lose in 10 minutes of, of time being down? And and yet someone in the organization may actually know how to prevent that if you ask the right question. Mm-hmm. Well, well, once again, uh, let me say thank you to uh, Jonathan Bernstein, head of Bernstein Crisis Management, for, for providing these exceptionally insightful uh, ideas as to how to go about preventing uh, you having a crisis in your particular organization. And uh, thank you again for listening. And uh, join us again for the next edition of the Public Relations Review. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies, an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us.